Howdy folks, welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John Amelson IV. Today we're chatting with wrestler Ronnie Big Bane Nicole. Ronnie has wrestled across the globe in various promotions. This episode we're talking about how she got into the business and the best advice she's gotten. Check it. So, how'd you get into the business? Um, I kind of stumbled in by happenstance at the time I was acting, modeling, and cheerleading. And uh, unfortunately, my semi-pro cheerleading team folded the team as well as, well as the, uh, the football team as well as the cheerleaders. And so I was looking for a team to cheer for, and I stumbled across a Craigslist ad in which uh, it was looking for athletic females. So I assumed at the time it was for another semi-pro team. But it turned out it was a gentleman who was trying to start an all-female wrestling promotion in North Carolina, where I'm located. And so he kind of got me into training. And from there, I just kind of, you know, hit the ground running with training. And I didn't look back once he introduced me to the business. Oh, cool. What team were you uh, cheering for? Uh, the Carolina Nighthawks. Oh, nice. Cool. So um, what you grew up on? Uh, watching in terms of wrestling? Yeah, wrestling. Yeah, so a lot of the older stuff I didn't watch until I'd actually broken into the business. And it was funny because my mother actually watched some of the older stuff, but I had no idea that she had an interest because she definitely did not express it. But my really inaugural interest in professional wrestling was Monday Night Raw. After, uh, But before that, it was seeing my cousins wrestle scholastically in high school and college and collegiately in college. You know, seeing amateur wrestling for all of the people in my family who did that prior to me, I was familiar with the art and with the sport, but it wasn't until I saw Raw that I saw that other element that really combined the pageantry and the theatrics and, you know, the stage presence that comes with being a professional wrestler. And so I was really grandfathered in at that point. Cool. So when did you first start watching Raw in that case? It was literally that very first episode. I was a little girl. I wasn't allowed to watch TV when I was growing up. My mom was really focused on me doing schoolwork. Um, she actually had me doing book reports for her, uh, you know, in my off time. And so TV was a Friday night, Saturday, and then Sunday after kind of evening, afternoon thing. But it was really only on the weekends. And so... I'm not really sure why I was at home at that time and able to, but my mom had not returned home yet, and I had just, you know, gotten into this ritual of watching this little TV we had in our kitchen at the time, and I saw Raw, and it was just something that struck me, you know, just it resonated with me so deeply I couldn't really put my finger on why I felt so connected or so drawn to it the pageantry obviously you know you see someone like max moon or Shawn michaels or the undertaker you know you obviously you're going to be drawn in by these characters and by these individuals but there was something else that really brought me into the fold in terms of my passion and my love for professional wrestling and that is something that to this day you know i, I can't ever really articulate it's just something that was deep inside of me that was all awoken and and to this day continues to burn and from that moment that was really what I, I kept setting my sights on. I had no idea how to get there. You know, I didn't know the, the easy route because, again, this was when I was a little girl, and, and so I had no idea how you got to be a professional wrestler. But I did decide at that point that I wanted to do this and one day that that would be my career. And I've been blessed enough to be able to walk out a path to, to lead me to that. To put it eloquently, that's fucking dope as shit, actually. 
you know. <laughs> I mean, that's actually a really cool back backstory, you know, because I remember the first episode. I was watching the first episode of Monday Night Raw, and the thing about it is, is a lot of people were surprised I stopped watching in between the years nineteen ninety five and nineteen ninety seven. But luckily, I fell back right in time when the Attitude Era popped back in. Mm-hmm. I think that was, I think that was also, you're not the first person to say that, you know, I think that those few years and even, a, I would say even two years before that, things started to kind of transition into where they didn't really know what the product was going to evolve into and it wasn't until really the Attitude Era hit that they were like, yes, this is what it's going to be and this is what's were the direction we need to move in. And I think with anything in terms of wrestling, if you're not willing to evolve and change and just kind of see where it's going to go organically, then you're going to force it, and nobody's going to bite with that. And we've seen that throughout other companies, different storylines, certain companies have put forth, you know, different things that we've seen in tropes of wrestling that we're like, man, we've seen this before, this was tired, because this isn't something that is really realistic and will grab us as watchers, as participants, and as consumers of the art. Um, but, you know, I I feel especially strongly about the early days of WWE, and especially, you know, going back and watching AWA and WCW and old ECW, and, you know, over half my trainers are ECW guys. So, like, it's definitely really connected in my heart to know to portray and to carry on the tradition of what we do. And I feel very fortunate, especially in COVID times, to still even be able to participate, you know, because everything is so crazy right now. I don't know about you, but 2020 has thrown a lot of fireballs my direction, and I have not been able to dodge all of them. So, you know, I feel very blessed to still even be able to call myself a a professional athlete right now during this time. So how has COVID-19 affected your bookings? Well, uh, Right before COVID-19, my mom was actually diagnosed with a uh, a terminal disease that affected her immune system. And so my bookings declined immediately at that time just because my interaction with others and being a caretaker for her, that was not, you know, conducive at all. Um, and so for me, COVID has definitely, I made the choice to retract and to not take as many bookings and to con- like cease all international travel and so it was challenging. You know, this is the least amount of time that I've been with consistent shows, consistent training, you know, working out at the gym, working out at home is not the same as being in the ring and being able to have that experience of, of working with another person and training. And especially this is the least amount I have ever trained being in Japan, being in China, being in the Philippines, my schedule in those places was a lot more rigorous than being here. And so it it was definitely really hard. And it's still a hard adjustment. You know, I'm gradually working back into it. I'll actually be in Lincoln to North Carolina this weekend, and I'll be going out to Florida on Sunday. But it's just um, a lot more precautions. You know, I have to be – I myself have a a compromised immune system, so I have to personally be – responsible for my health and making sure I don't do anything that's going to be risky or dangerous and you know regardless of how people feel politically speaking about the the pandemic the fact is is you know my mom was in the hospital and she was in the ICU where half the ICU was ICU patients and the other half was COVID-19 patients you know so whatever is going on it's real and it's 
and it's serious and, and people unfortunately are not making it. They're not living, they're not being able to continue to live the same quality of life that they had prior to getting sick and so whatever this is, I do think it's all of our responsibility to just try to do our best to keep everyone safe and so I am taking bookings, I do want to get back into traveling and I definitely want to, you know, always be in the ring because that's where my heart is but I can't also put myself or others at risk so I think we're. I'm still kind of working by what our state governor says, what you know, other places say because certain places still they're not open for shows as well. And I'm, I'm also trying to make sure I'm working places that are more quality. You know, I'm getting a little more seasoned. Like I said, I'm not anybody in the game, um, but I'm becoming more veteran in status, and so I have to be aware of where I'm going and putting my efforts. And I've been fortunate enough to work with some great places that are training some up-and-coming people and that are giving me the experience to be able to help out and lend a hand and pay it forward in terms of sharing knowledge, which I do think we all should do regardless of what our industry is. You know, once you learn something, try to help someone. Try to give them a little bit of an easier time than you had. Try to open that door, that window, so that they can have a, a smoother transition experience so that as it goes along, everyone can have access to something that's wonderful because that's what wrestling is, you know, it's, it's giving people a wonderful experience and a, a portal, if you will, to another world where things can be more than they are, and I think that's a blessing and a gift and, and a privilege for a very select few. I love how you put that, you know, I really dig how you put that, I admire your passion, you know. Really well, dig. it's hard, you know, to maintain. It's not been an easy road by any means, no. you know. No. I can, I can, <laughs> I'm, I can a, <laughs> I'm a queer Afro-Latina from the South. It's the Bible Belt. Like, it's, <laughs> Shit. oh gosh. Add, it's, Eddie it's, Spiky whew. Mohawk and loud guitars, you sound like half my right. voice. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so you understand, you're in the music industry, so you know how things are... When people see you, whether you're dressed a certain way or you look a certain way or listen to a type of music, they kind of just formulate an opinion about you, and that's what they operate on. And we're human. We do that. But it is disappointing this day and age with the industry that we have that we still have to, you know, face those things. And it's not just me. There are people from all walks of life who are facing similar struggles. And, again, when speaking out happens, it was like, finally the the doors were being opened on some things that were definitely and still are problematic within our industry and I, I just hope my hope is is that it wasn't a flash in the pan that we can actually see change and we can actually make wrestling better and and have less of these you know heart-wrenching stories my stories you know, my my stories are not different than anybody else it's just different place different people different time but it's always the same, you know, feeling powerless, being made to feel small, being taken advantage of, being put in situations where, you know, you're given a choice based on the status quo as they see it. And it's, it's, it's not always fair, but at the same time, when you're given the opportunity for privilege to experience wrestling as we do as professionals, you do have to put up with that. And as a, like I said, as an Afro-Latina, I've had to put up with that every day of my life. So it's, it's no different, but I do hope that as we move forward into 2021, wrestlers, promoters, fans, we all hold that personal accountability to make it better so that moving forward, it's not just empty words. 
you know, it's not just empty gestures. It's a real quality change that we can see across the business at the highest levels because that's also where we have to hold that accountability. We watch them every week and we expect to see these places that are so visible be the pinnacle and be the beacon that we here on the independence and here making those different independent inroads, you know, internationally and otherwise, there's a standard that we all look to regardless of if you would like to admit it or not. And I, I hope that moving forward we can see that standard start to be upheld, you know. All right. Not not that you had to mention any names, but was there anybody you were surprised by that was listed? Oh, I was surprised by a few people, and I actually had to have a few hard conversations. I will admit that there were some people on there that I was friends with, and I was surprised to see their name, and I sent them the, hey, bro, what the fuck message. <laughs> and, uh, you know, based on how our conversation went after that, depended on, you know, whether I maintained a relationship with them or not. Um, and unfortunately, I have to say it did get lighter. And, you know, in a few circumstances, we are working through that on a one-on-one -on -one basis just because their particular situations haven't been as verified as others. And so I'm the type of person, I, I got to see the, the proof, even though that sounds terrible in terms of the victim, I just can't say someone did something if, they're, if I wasn't there, if I didn't see it with my two, old, two eyes, if I haven't seen a pattern, I can't just assume things that's not the type of person I was brought up to be so you know in, in two specific situations we're on a <clears throat> I would say we're in a purgatory situation but other people I just had to cut the cord John I'm not going to support any type of behavior that is detrimental to another person I'm not going to sit here and ride for you and support your career knowing that you're subjugating young people or that you're you know, showing your wean to underage folks or that you're, you know, gaslighting people into thinking that what you did wasn't that bad and, you know, posting crazy social media stuff trying to justify what you did, but you did it. <laughs> so why are you taking this long to justify what you did? I can't do that. So, you know, and I wasn't, I don't have to make a whole grand thing about it. Like, some people were like, oh, I am friend of this person, blah, blah, blah. Like, great. But the, the fact of the matter is, is this person did something wrong and somebody got hurt. So it's not even about you. It's, you shouldn't even be posting the fact that you didn't keep your relationship with them. Just delete them and keep it moving. Like, nobody needs to know that you were associated with this person because that doesn't make you a part of the situation. That doesn't take away what happens to the person who is the victim. That doesn't you know, exonerate the person who committed the act or act. So, you know, I just kind of let my personal stuff and affiliation with certain people just kind of go the way it was going to go. You know, things are rough this year all around for everyone, but I do see the silver lining of this has been something that has needed to be addressed for a very long time. You know, coming into the business, I never really had – um, and I'm not saying that anybody who experienced any of this had an attitude for someone to approach them in that way, but I was always so aggressive with how much I wanted to just wrestle that I 
the people I was involved with or the people that I was around, I didn't get put into certain circumstances like other people. Now, that is not to say I haven't had my situations, but I do feel very blessed to not have lived through some of these horrible things. And it's just like these are people that you're on shows with that are doing these acts and then smiling in your face and taking selfies and going out to eat with you. And it just blows my mind to think that you could treat someone or do these things to people and then turn around and act like nothing happened. Um, you know, I it's still, pro, it's still a lot of processing for me personally, again, because I knew people on that list. And like I said, I lost people who I thought were cool and who were my friends. But that's not what it was and so I hope that out of all of this that the victims and that the people who were subjugated to this however and in whatever form for them not for the business but for the individuals because what may be good for the business may not be good for the individual but for for what would be good for the individuals affected by these heinous acts I hope that they find peace. I hope they find their form of justice. I hope that they are able to heal and to not feel like the business took something from them, you know, because they are a vital part of the wrestling community. And it just is terrible that these certain individuals thought it was their right to make them feel anything less and to, to make them feel, you know, like they didn't belong. I was literally driving thursday and listening to npr and it bbc MP, the bbc was talking about speaking out and they you know were talking about the interviews that they had had with some of the british wrestlers over in the uk and i'm just like this is insane like why did it take so long for all of this and especially with certain people john like certain people <laughs> I did not know them, so I can't be like, oh, well, I know. You know, you hear whispers, but if I don't know this person, I'm not just going to be like, oh, yeah, I got proof that they, you know. But certain people, you hear these whispers, and then they come out, and it's like, oh, wow. So other people knew about this who were in close proximity, and you guys just, what, thought it was cool to let that happen? Or what? There's just, for me, there's more questions than answers. And I, again, but I am hopeful that with things being exposed, that with fans, new companies, promoters who do want to make a difference, wrestlers who really will stick by their beliefs that we can change this business and make it what it was always meant to be. You know, we may start have started out at, at carnivals and festivals, and it may be carny in its roots, but that does not mean that's what it has to continue to be. Because how how can we evolve and grow if we do not literally do that, evolve and grow? And certain behaviors have to die in order for for wrestling to rise like a phoenix from the ashes and be what it's the glory that I feel every time I am in the ring. You know, for it to really come into its true fruition, I, I believe a lot of things are going to have to stick, and that may be hard for some people. But, hey, you know, if you're a shit bird, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get shit on. Pardon my language, but, you know. <laughs> no problem. I tell you street love on the show anyway, but... That's true, because I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. There were a lot of times while I was hitting the refresh button, I was like, I just hope there's nobody that I know on this list. I'm like, luckily, nobody liked that. And the one dude, it wasn't so much a speaking out thing. It was just a really bad attempt at flirtation. <laughs> so he was just awkward. Now, some of the things I was like, 
if someone is awkward or they said something that they really didn't mean, I would not consider that a part of speaking out because I have bungled, you know, plenty of things where I thought it was going to come out sexy and it definitely came out either objectifying or awkward. So, you know, we've all been there, you know, <laughs> but there is a line. You know, and there's there's definitely a line, and there were quite a few individuals who, on a regular basis, you know, felt like it was cool to cross that line. And I'm like, dude, clearly you weren't popping in high school. Like, I wasn't popping in high school. I was a band. You know what I'm saying? But I was cool for bands, all right? So let's not get it twisted. You, like, you weren't cool for anyone, and so now you got a little bit of clout you know, you're thinking you got a little celebrity rub and you can run around like you're having crazy eyes wide shut sex parties or something, get your life, okay, like, no, no, (laughs) we all have bills, we've got student loans, like, (laughs) let's not get above our station, that's not what this business is about, we're here for the fans, we're here to give people an escape from the everyday horrors, at least in 2020, (laughs) you know, of being a human on earth, because it's rough, you know, whether the country is literally burning, figuratively burning, spiritually burning, it's on fire, okay, and so to be a part of something that can give people joy, suspend their disbelief, they ain't got to worry about bills. They ain't got to worry about freaking homeschool curriculum plans. You know, they ain't got to worry about going to get a freaking COVID swab up the nose. They, for just that 10 minutes, they get to buy into the story that we organically create in that ring. That's powerful, man. That's beauty. That's creativity. That's art in a a way that you can't even articulate through music because it's a different form of expression. And I just, I I feel so passionately about wrestling because I am that, nerdy dance theater band color guard geek that will always love to perform and share that art with people because sharing that makes me feel better but i do think that sometimes people get a little too caught up in the celebrity part and get a little too big-headed in terms of what they think they can and cannot do and at no point with any level of power whether you are a professional wrestler a politician a teacher a fireman what the fuck ever, the president, you don't get to abuse what you have just because you have it. That's fucking trash. Again, excuse my language, but that's Like, no, not okay. <laughs> hey, don't worry about the language. It's fucking fine that Danny ain't worried about that. No, <laughs> all right. Speaking of which, you, you mentioned you were trained under some of the ECW guys, right? Mm-hmm. Who are you trained under? Uh, Lou Marconi. He's a former NWA national champion. Uh, but C.W. Anderson and Chili Welly from ECW. They were my second batch. My first batch of trainers, uh, Nightstick Eddie Brown and Tony Hangtime James in Fayetteville. So I linked up with them, uh, as I was telling you at the beginning, when I linked up with a gentleman who was looking to start a promotion in North Carolina for only for women. He had coordinated things with Eddie and Tony to train the women so that he had a core roster of girls for the organization. And so, um, you know, they originally started my training, but once that guy saw that it was a little bit trickier to get uh, women interested in wrestling, at least at that time, uh, he kind of abandoned those hopes. And so I had a brief interlude, and then I ended up training at uh, CW's cousin school with him and, and those gentlemen. And I do feel very fortunate to have 
so many old school guys have a hand in my training because it has definitely aided me well around the world here in the States and, you know, just being able to be in matches and have a lot of great opportunities that I, I would not have had if it had not been for a very strong foundation in the business that was handed to me and was learned and earned. So I do feel very blessed. I can't remember, but I did a little research and you said, you said, um, did you have like a seminar with, with Robert Gibbs and Ricky and Ricky Morton? Some, no, some no, I, they did, they did have a, a few seminars at uh, Premier Wrestling Federation and I worked for them down in Hubert, North Carolina, and that was Steve Carino's former, uh, promotion. And yeah, so they had some seminars there. Um, but I know Mr. Morton and Mr. Gibson just from, you know, being around the the area. I really was fortunate. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be on some shows where George South had them come in. Um, they were always coming in for NCWA, which runs some shows in the Clayton area. Um, SWA, which also runs in the Clayton area, would bring them in. Um, and just, <laughs> you know, especially going out Charlotte way. There was one particular show where um, Mr. Gibson wasn't there, but Mr. Morton was, and he's definitely my old school crush, <laughs> for real key. And I was working the merch table for a wrestler uh, at the time that I was traveling with, and Mr. Morton finished in the ring, and he saw me at the merch table, and I just kind of, you know, gave him a little wave or whatever, just being respectful because I would get with him after the show. And uh, he came all the way over and gave me a hug and was, you know, how you doing, girl? And I was just, I was, I was so tickled, you know, that he gave me a little, a little, a little love, you know, on his way from after just doing his match. And everybody was like, who's that girl? And I was like, um, Mr. Martin's future wife. No disrespect <laughs> at all, but also factual. <laughs> well, I guess I guess I discussed your question. I was going to ask if you learned anything from either. Robert Gibson, Ricky Morton. I was going to ask. Uh, oh Lord, I've learned so much from Mister from both of them. Let me uh, just off the top of my head from Mister Morton merchandising and how to do a merch table because all of the stuff that they did back in the day, back in the territory days, they had to really do things and hustle differently because it was so traditional. So the heels did not sell merch back at that time, but they still needed to be able to make money. And so he really, during his seminars and just being in the locker room listening to him and sitting under his learning tree, put me onto a lot of things and tactics that they used to do back in the day that just needed to be revamped for what we do today and how we interact and we are consumers of now. Uh, commerce is commerce. You know, it doesn't matter what what the time period is, and so I feel very fortunate to have listened to him so much as he's talked about making money, and he would always come back with a not full of money, you know, from the merchandise tables because he knows how to do that and interact and really work with people in order to satisfy their need of wanting to purchase something but also work within the budget because the reality is is you know, everybody ain't got it like that all the time. And so you have to be able to adjust to what your patrons have and make sure that you can at least satisfy them in some way. And he definitely taught me personally a lot about, you know, 
different price points and making sure you had something at all of those price points for people who were coming to the show. Because again, wrestling attracts people from all walks of life, so you need to make sure that you have things that are going to be able to go across the board from the high end to the low end dollar. Not that any dollar is better than the other, but sometimes people only got $2 after they have bought tickets for their whole family and food for the whole family and candy for the kids. You know, like, you, it's like going to the fair. Once you spend 40 or $50 on food and rides and stuff, you only have so much left over to buy anything else. And so I was really fortunate to be around these old school guys who worked during the territory days and really knew how to bring in that money even if you weren't able to physically be at a merch table or you were having to adjust to whatever your character work is. You know, usually I work as a heel, so I don't generally go out and do things. So I had to learn how to be able to do that. Um, it, that depends on where I am. In the South, I generally don't. North is a little bit different. International is definitely different. In Japan, especially working with World Women for Wrestling, Vienna, and with Marvelous, they expect you to be at your merch table and, and sell, you know, the merchandise for the company as well as for yourself. So, you know, it really just varies wherever you are. But I definitely learned a lot from him and from Mr. Gibson about how to make sure that you were generating that income because, let's be real, professional wrestling is not going to get you those high dollars until you get to those higher levels or until you've strategically been able to work out how to consistently turn over that type of revenue based on an independent schedule. And we've seen that done in the past, especially by the Young Bucks and others of, of that nature, but it takes time to build that, and, and it's not something that happens overnight. And so it's definitely important to learn from those veterans and to pay attention to those little techniques and tactics that can help you to generate that additional income. You know, especially with the pandemic, I know a lot of wrestlers have started OnlyFans and, and Patreons and, and whatnot to, to kind of help with that, that type of revenue. So anything that you could do to kind of bring in content and to bring or to create content which will bring in revenue, excuse me, uh, I believe is, is good. And that all comes from that old, you know, carny, make a dollar mindset that <laughs> wrestling was, was started in, you know. You've wrestled outside of the United States. What is something you've learned for every country you wrestled in? What's something you learned? I think if I could summarize it in terms of everywhere that I've been in my career, my short career thus far, you know, uh, actually October the 10th will be nine years in the business for me. And even in that time, I, I've learned that you don't know anything about where you are until you're there. And I think that it's very important, especially when traveling, you know, as, as Americans, we often have the attitude of we're the best and everywhere we go, we're entitled to what we see and can reach and, and obtain within our realm of presence and existence, but that's not true. And I think that traveling has taught me to have more of a reverence for places that I'm not from and to be patient in learning the ways of the places that I go, be patient in understanding that I do not understand, and that's not a bad thing, but it is a part of the learning process to open yourself up to people 
cultures and experiences that help to grow you and to give you a little more insight into the human condition. Um, I think if I had not traveled, if I just kind of stayed within North Carolina, I would not have that same mindset just because it is very easy to be insular, especially at a time like now. You know, it's it's funny in the climate, even though there is a lot of racial, racially charged unrest as it should be, and there's a lot of political unrest and environmental unrest and, you know, just general unrest, the, the mindset of certain people and the attitude of fear reminds me of when I was in high school and when 9-11 happened. And, like, right after that, everybody lost their fucking minds. And everyone was so scared and everyone was so paranoid of each other and everyone was just gripped by these feelings of sadness and fear and, you know, the scarcity that came out of nowhere. And it was just all the adults in my life I felt like were so out of control based on this this fear that was descending upon our country and, you know, that same fear is sweeping through our country again, just in a different form. And, you know, I feel like if we as athletes don't make it not our mission to be aware of that, but if we're not aware of how our art and how life is different than our veterans, if we aren't aware of how what we do is represented to others, whether it is something that we say on our social media or our core beliefs or what we say in performance, if we aren't aware to some degree socially, we are lagging in a large way, whereas our veteran counterparts didn't always have that same responsibility because of the lack of social media, you know? So I don't know if that answers your question. And again, you know, I'm a tangenter, so. I no, actually, not, it's cool. The show's like an hour <laughs> long anyway, so go yeah, off, you but, know. But I guess I wanted to, but it kind of answered the question. I was saying, what's the difference between, you know, how's wrestling respected in Japan versus the United States or better yet, outside, outside the United States? How do you see it as? I do, the biggest difference for me when I was in Japan was organization. You know, we're coming up, and again, nothing against the South. I'm very, very Southern and very proud. Not Confederate flag proud, uh, <laughs> but very proud of being Southern. Um, but I did notice that there was a lot more organization. Like in Japan, shows started and ended on time. They did not go over. <laughs> Your shit got cut if you were going over with a quickness, and that was regular there. You know, people stayed to the script. Things were set up and organized ahead of time. Multiple places worked together, which also struck me as something that we don't do as much here. Now, that has changed for at least in my eyes within, I would say, the last four to five years, you know, because when I initially started, it was very like, you know, I am this organization, I run this area, I don't work with anyone else. I want my product to be the best, even at an independent level, not looking at a national level or a television level. 
And so in Japan, when you have organizations running the same venues and, like, having the same roster members work together, we come in and load in and load out together, sell each other's merchandise, help each other as seconds at the ring, you know, clean their canvas, clean up after their show, vice versa. That whole sense of working together was something that was very foreign to me, even more so than going to a foreign country, because I had not experienced that here in the States. You know, I had not experienced a collaborative effort between multiple organizations, and if so, it was still more of like my person is representing my organization, and my person represents mine. You know, it wasn't it wasn't presented as we are all here to make this show happen. And I really enjoyed that and really, you know, loved that atmosphere as it was, as it was created over there because you got to really experience and see how different organizations work together, how they ran their, their operation. Um, you obviously got to work with a lot of different people, you know, which was awesome. I loved when Diana crossed over, uh, Deanna crossed over with um, JWP, which is Pure J now. But the um, <clears throat> the times that we got to cross over, you know, I was astounded because it was so cool to see Command Bolshoi having a crazy Lucha-style match, and then she's carrying ring ropes and helping break down merchandise tables, and this woman is a veteran. You know, she's a super veteran, and if I'm not mistaken, is retired now, but I think she retired a year or two ago, if I'm not mistaken, but... Um, you know, being able to work hand in hand with her, you know, uh, before she retired, Rabbit knew I got to have a match with her, and that was awesome because these women are so known and legendary, and yet setting up a ring and breaking down a ring and making sure the show is running the way it's supposed to is just a part of the business for them. Whereas sometimes I feel here in the state, people think there are levels and it's like below them to do certain things. And so they don't really look at it the same. And I genuinely believe that it is the same. No matter if you're the president or if you were somebody who's just coming to set up the ring, everybody has a part to play. The show has to be executed based on everyone playing their part and working together. So no one part is more important than the other. You know, somebody's not saying, oh, yeah, it was just my radiator that got me here. No, your whole engine and everything that's under your hood got you where you want to go. And so I do feel like here in the States we kind of look at things more singularly, whereas I've noticed in my international travels working together or looking at the whole has been more of their their picture. And who knows, you know, in 2021, 2022, hopefully that will bring some organizations in the States that, that will change my view of that. And as these new things grow and evolve, as we have seen, you know, based on speaking out and people being more cognizant of having to do better and make better wrestling decisions, we'll see those things that I'm talking about. But I definitely do notice a, a difference between being stateside and abroad for sure. That kind of reminds me a little bit in ECW where the guys where even though they're talent, right, they still has some, they were doing some backstage, you know, to keep, mm-hmm. to keep the shit running. That was the, that just reminded me of that, you know, like Taz yeah. had an eye for graphics and everything, 
and also um, those stories. And a lot of people don't know that he was a really awesome graphic designer. You know, a lot of people don't realize that that is something that is beneficial. It's not beneath you to use the extra skills that you have to benefit what you're working for. Now, that is not to say be exploited for that. Now, let's keep it a hot 3,000. There are definitely some people and some organizations, and I've been a part of a few, where when you're kind or when you offer something that you can do, they take advantage of that because they feel like you're a roster member, they shouldn't have to pay for it, or, you know, these talents should just come with the fact that you perform for them as a professional wrestler. That is not the same thing, you know? But in Japan, it's like everybody contributes everything that they're able to do to the product and to make it and make it work, you know? And additionally, everybody not everyone, let me stop saying that, but a lot of people in Japan have two jobs, so they're not just professional wrestlers. They have a restaurant or a bar, um, you know, they have an izakaya, they have a store, they have a boutique, they have uh, some sort of other business, you know, other than just them being a professional athlete, and that is normal, whereas here in the States, it's almost as if it's looked at as a bad thing. You know, if you have a day job, so to speak, or you have an alternative career, you know, you should just be a wrestler and that's it. But in the world that we live in, everyone is something else. You know, everybody is a has had some sort of other interest or passion or hobby that they either like or work in or monetize. And, it, and I think it should be more normal here, but... Again, those are the differences when you are traveling versus being in the States, and it's not better or worse than the other. It's just different, and those are things that you have to adjust to and know when you're traveling so you can be successful wherever you are. Um, but I do prefer traveling. I love Japan. You know, I miss the shopping. Jesus Lord. I miss the food. You know, I miss training, and I miss seeing my friends there. Um, you know, it was definitely hard when Hannah passed because – it was, you know, she was always at Sendai Girls, and I remember being at rest stops with her and talking with her, and there was a, a wrestler, a foreign wrestler who spoke fluent Japanese, so sometimes she would translate, and sometimes Hannah and I could have our own broken little conversations on the bus on the way back and forth to shows or, you know, eating and stuff, and it was, it's challenging when you become a part of someone's life, and then things change like that so rapidly, and you know, I, I miss the experience of getting to be there. I remember going to Hamaraiku Gardens, and they have a 300-year-old pine tree. And I just remember standing in front of this tree like, you've seen some shit. Like, you know, like, <laughs> this tree has seen some shit. A while back, you mentioned you worked with Tessa Blanchard, right? And I've heard things, but in your experience, what was the vibe you get off her? My experience is that at the time that I knew Tessa, she was very young, and we all have a lot of growing to do. I had hoped to see she grew a bit more in that time. Unfortunately, we saw that there were some things that were said and done that didn't demonstrate that. However, everybody has a path to walk, and as we walk that path, we will continue to grow and mature, and I wish that for her. And that's about all I'm going to say on that. That is the best answer, actually, you know? <laughs> That is the most eloquent, classy way to put something, you know? Listen, I my 20s was 
not the most best representation of how I was raised, of who I am, of, you know, anyone in my life, that we can't all be held to what we do at that time. However, if we continue to demonstrate things that show more to our heart and our character versus maturity and evolution of character, then we do have to be held accountable for those. And so I hope that this is just something that will be a part of that changing part of her and not a part of that permanent part of her. And I wish her success and happiness and all that she does, truthfully. Cool. You know, because even, um, I think, you know, Randy Orton, for example, he's kind of trying to rebrand himself so we don't have to call him Clandy anymore. <laughs> Listen, I will tolerate no Viper slander because when Randy shows up to work and he's in the mood to work, he puts in work. Okay? So it just depends on what mood he's in, and I can relate to that, John. I'm kind of like a cat in terms of I don't want to be bothered. I would like you to feed me and pet me regularly when I request it. And if I don't want to do anything, all you're going to get out of me is laying in the window in the sun. So I can relate to Randy not showing up for work some days. You know, sometimes he's just like whatever, and sometimes he's like, hell yeah. So not speaking to anything, you know, here recently because I'm not as up on the product in terms of that. But my my past love of Randy still stands, Okay. Uh, Randy, also, if you're listening, I am available for brunch. <laughs> Let's say that a friend of mine's kind of helped expand his mind. Well, listen, I did see that some of his views had changed, and I'm very proud of him for standing up and admitting so, because everybody doesn't do that. You know, some people run embarrassed or scared, but the fact is, is when you get new information and when new things come to you, it's okay to change how you think and feel. And he admitted that. And just, again, it's a journey. Everybody might say or do some fucked up shit, but as long as they continue to improve and grow, can we fault them for improving and growing? No, because that's literally life, and that's what we're supposed to do until we depart this realm. So, you know, big ups to him. Again, Vipes, at Glitterlicious on Twitter, <laughs> if you are available. <laughs> also, Mrs. Vipes, don't worry about it. I'll have him back by 8. <laughs> Do you think WWE is still the end-all, be-all as a goal, or do you think other options could rival it? I think that WWE has strategically set themselves up as to look like the industry's end-all, be-all. I do not think they ever were, and I do not think that they ever will be. You know, And we can see that as evidenced by the Young Bucks. Whether they went to AEW or not, they had made a complete independent career and had worldwide, internationally recognized names without doing anything that is typically associated with you having success, a.k.a. following the performance center tracks and going to WWE. So I don't think, honestly, as much as it seems like they have a stronghold on the game and that they are the only game in town, they're not. And I believe, again, success is measured by the individual and what they believe success is. You know, some people may view success as the fact that they can work a thousand or two thousand or three thousand matches within the United States or within their state, and that is great. And if that is success for them, that is success for them. No one else has the right to impose their beliefs upon someone else in terms of what they deem as the level of success or 
an equal person based on what they have achieved. That's no one's position to do that, you know. So I think that, you know, no, I don't think that WWE has the right to, to claim that. I do think that they have the right to claim being the most recognizable brand in the world. I do think they have the right to be to claim the fact that they generate the most successful sports entertainers from their performance center and from their brands. But I do not think that they are the end-all, be-all, and I do not think that they are what we should measure success by just because for so long it has been done that way. Because outside of wrestling, we can look at things throughout life and history that have been done the same way for a long time, and that is basura. You know, that's trash. So why would we continue to perpetuate those things if they're not working? And that is not to say WWE is not working, but they are not the only game in town. And as we see other organizations spring up, as we see that Internet Wrestling TV picks up these Internet, uh, picks up independent wrestling from around the country and gives them their own platform to be recognized by people around the world, you know, this whole thing of WWE being the one game in town is changing and will continue to change. And as it evolves, I hope that they will evolve. You know, I see that they're doing this whole underground situation. And I hope that they can make their product viable and keep it relevant for, for years to come. But at the same time, if other things spring up and evolve and, and give opportunity for people in the business and for customers and fans to indulge in and consume and be happy and, you know, enjoy, then let's allow the room for that as well. And I think especially now is a great time to look at what we can do in terms of diversity. You know, where is the major minority WWE brand? Where is the brand that showcases all of the actual true traditional luchadors here in the States? And I'm not talking about you know, a triple A or CMLL, I'm talking about here in the States, a visible, nationally recognized brand that showcases all of the wonderful diversity and different wrestling styles that are afforded to us, but not always shown, because for certain reasons, WWE will only push one thing or another. But the fact of the matter is, is our world is not one thing or another. Our world is multiple things represented by different races from multiple places. And if we walk down the street and we see people of all different creeds, colors, shapes, and sizes, why is it when we turn on the TV we cannot see the same? So tell me more about Wrestling Horror Story. So Wrestling Horror Story is actually going to be a custom shoot. So the Empress has imprisoned... Uh, nine other wrestlers in an underground lair, and in order to get out, they will have to atone for their wrestling sins, as well as beat the Empress or the other opponents booked for them. So people are able to order matches up until October the 22nd, and they can email Wrestling Horror Story Customs or WHS Customs at gmail.com to book their matches. So far, we have the Empress, myself, versus Charlie Cruel. Uh, multiple times, as well as Theo Ivory versus Trevor Eon, MV Young versus Flex 
Simmons and Marcel Kane versus Trevor Aon. So we will have a lot of different matchups that people haven't seen before. Customs is usually, um, you know, one gender, but I thought I wanted to put a different twist on it. And I'm obsessed with American Horror Story, so I wanted to create something that would embody every horror that wrestling has been through thus far, but also create an artistic and cinematic project that cr that gives something different to people, especially during these pandemic and COVID times, when people are looking for different ways to really engage in wrestling. So people can still, like I said, order up until October 22nd. Matches are able to be broken up into payment plans. And so I'm really excited to be a part of this project and to first this and to all of the wrestlers who are taking part because some of these matchups are not ever seen before. So I'm very excited to see what people are going to create. Okay, wait. So, okay, we'll make sure I got to clear those. So is this your creation or who's who started this? So this is the creation of myself, yes. Wrestling Horror Story Customs is my brainchild and my baby. Oh, cool. And there will be, it'll be a different theme. So the first is Nightmare Lair, which is the underground lair. And we will have a different theme for the next uh, either live show or custom taping. Um, and so I really wanted to create a wrestling anthology to give a different view of how wrestling is consumed. You know, it's 2020, we've always really engaged in wrestling in the same way. And right now, I feel like this is the right time to do something different and fresh and a little bit dark in terms of wrestling to kind of exercise some of those evils and some of those demons that have really plagued the business for so long, to exercise those in an artistic way. And as we move forward, we'll have some different cool stuff for people to engage in. But I can't give too many details away, but yeah. Orders can go to whscustoms at gmail.com. You can hit me up on my Facebook if you have any questions. Right now, all of the wrestlers available, um, we have the Weapon of Ass Destruction, Miss Dementia D. Rose, Charlie Cruel, myself as the Empress. We have Theo Ivory, Akira, Marcel Kane, MV Young, Trevor Aon, as well as a surprise wrestler, and we have Kota, the deathmatch dog, who is going to be giving her karanas and beating people's ass, apparently, if you want to book him to wrestle, too. So uh, it's going to be a really amazing shoot. I'm super excited to see how everything turns out, and there's definitely going to be surprises at the end of the videos for people who either purchase a DVD, Blu-ray, or download so make sure you hit us up at Wrestling Horror Story Customs, whscustoms at gmail.com to place your order for your own created match and to see who is going to make it out of the nightmare that I have created. That's actually dope as shit, actually, you know? <laughs> I really dig that concept because, all right, okay, biggest influence in the ring. Hmm... My biggest influence in the ring. Do, 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 do. That's actually super hard to say because I'm an amalgamation of a lot of different wrestlers and a lot of different um, performers because I've also noticed that I've pulled from different elements of my life and different elements of entertainment to kind of create who Ronnie Nicole Redman is. But obviously, Aja Kong, 
um, and awesome Kong, you know, two super strong, powerful black women who have really set the bar very high for the future of professional wrestling and for all of us who follow in their footsteps. Um, Minoru Suzuki, uh, Naomichi Mirafuji, uh, Malenko, Benoit, Guerrero, uh, a little Lita, uh, a little Victoria, a little Ivory, uh, even a dash, a little Egypt, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, a little bit of Megan Thee Stallion, a little Cardi B. Well, actually, let me walk that back and say little Cam Trina, then Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion. Um, <laughs> All, all of the, obviously, the Queen Beyonce, you know. Um, all of these women, though, have really poured into me, not just in a professional wrestling sense, but in a sense of being a woman, in a sense of being a representative of what my career, what my path, and what my life is going to be, because all of them walked very high you know, in in their respective fields and they continue to do so. And so all of these particular individuals and men have poured into me in a way that has helped form me in terms of who I am as a performer. And, again, blessed and grateful. Those are the two things that even despite all of the hellaciousness of 2020, despite losing my mother and family and friends and, you know, everything that has kind of been thrown at me in this year thus so far, I, I feel very grateful because I have been empowered, especially by my mother and the women who came before me in my own family in terms of my professional wrestling career, and by these women who externally, even though I have you know maybe met them briefly or had no encounter with them at all, have somehow had a hand in creating me and formulating me into this being who is able to walk forward every day, you know, and keep keep my chin up. So it's definitely taken a tribe. To, to raise me as a woman and as a wrestler, and I, I feel very grateful to have all of these hands, male and female, to have poured into me, to have influenced me, to be able to watch. You know, there's a little bit of Johnny Saint in there. There's a little Bachwick on there. There's a little Gotch in there. So I definitely feel very uh, fortunate to have had so many tr wonderful trainers to pour their knowledge and their experience and their wrestling influences into me, as well as being able to see, observe, absorb, and execute the different parts that I've taken from all of these people who've influenced me. I fucking dig that, you know? What can I say? That's really, that's really dope, actually, you know? Like, you know, I'm not surprised when you name drop Bachwinkle because you being a student in the game, I'm not surprised... You know about that. You know, <laughs> funny story. Yeah. That was actually Prince's side project. This hard rock band is actually called Bachwinkle. Really? Yeah. Apparently, <laughs> Prince was a big wrestling guy. You know, but also it makes sense. He was like a big AWA guy. But him being from Minneapolis, it kind of makes sense. From Minnesota, yeah. Yeah. So, shoot, that was another territory I found very fascinating. All those guys that ended up in, you know, in in eighties WWF. You know, like for example, from that area, mm -hmm. exactly like Mean Gene Okerlund, um, Dr. David Schultz, and Hulk Hogan too. All those guys, mm -hmm. I've always found it fascinating. Yeah. You know, about well, that. it's always interesting to see how many people come out of a particular area. And oh yeah, how particular areas have such a rich 
you know, history that we don't know about. You know, it wasn't until I started working up in Pennsylvania that I learned about all the people who came out of that particular area and have their roots in the PA scene, you know, whether it be on the Pittsburgh side or or the um, the opposite or the Philly side. Um, it, it's definitely interesting to see, especially coming from the South, how all of these places have birthed so many incredible and talented people and everybody has that kind of independent history you don't hear about because once you see your favorite person on TV, you just assume they've been on TV. You know, you don't know the history of what they've done for the area necessarily unless you follow their career. Oh, yeah. And so I've, I've felt very blessed being able to travel to different places in different states to kind of learn about the veterans of these places, especially, you know, as rough as my experience in the Mid-South was, I'm very grateful for it because I learned about a lot of great wrestlers who came out of that area, you know, a lot of great wrestlers who came out of Kentucky and Tennessee, um, you know, Indiana, and and as well as, you know, when I'm traveling up to Jersey and PA and, you know, just being in the locker rooms with some of these legends and some of these wrestlers who've been the senpai of the states, you know, I, I've, again, blessed and, and grateful because I've I've had a very favorable experience in terms of the learning trees I've been allowed to sit under, the locker rooms I've been allowed to share, and the way that that knowledge has poured into me that I hope one day I will be able to execute and share on a higher level as well. Best advice you got from the vets? Best advice I got from the vets? Knocking in the biz. <laughs> what? Yeah, all the veterans I talked to told me to get out of the business at one point or another. Damn. <laughs> but but that was the best advice they gave me because I was a contrary and I am a contrary ass person. I can tell. So to continue to pursue, to continue to persevere, to not allow the negative things that people perpetuate in the business in the name of the business to affect me was exactly what I needed to do in here. You know, this is a this isn't a, a marathon. This or this is a marathon. You know, it's not a sprint, it is definitely a marathon. So slow and steady will win the race and I hope that through my interactions, through my advocacy, through my teachings and seminars and workshops and things that I do in order to help others and as I learn and continue to expand my career throughout the business that I will be able to pass along those positive aspects and those things that will continue to evolve, help evolve and shape the business in the best way possible, you know, so that we can continue to enjoy it and share it with others for decades and years to come. Dope. Well, Ronnie, great chatting with you. Looking forward to speaking to you in the future. You know, I definitely want to check out Wrestling Horror Story. You know, take it easy. Great chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me, and, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. And you guys, make sure you follow me on Twitter, at Glitterlicious. Follow me on Instagram, at Glitterlicious Bang Bang. My Snapchat is Ronnie Nicole R. And again, if you want to order a custom match with myself, Trevor Aon, Indy Young, Akira, Charlie Cruel, or Scarlett, you can do that at whscustoms at gmail.com. And for booking inquiries, Ronnie Nicole R, R-O-N-I-N-I-C-O-L-E-R at gmail.com. And thank you again so much for having me. I look forward to talking to you soon, John. All right. Peace. Bye. Peace. Bye. That was Ronnie Big Bang Nicole. Check out Wrestling Horror Story and her matches on YouTube. Peace.